Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the wonky show. We're talking ref, ref, ref the Queen's speech and everything John Blake said at Access All Areas it's all coming up I, I mean I genuinely read Ronky every day I love it um, but I do feel that I could, I could announce that every HE provider should give every student a bag of gold and there would half an hour be later a, a Jim Dickinson article that's said <laughs> has John Blake considered the terrible impact this will have on inflation um, so I think there's not an infinite array of things we could have considered in the variations but clearly um, cost of living and uh, an appropriate financial support is one of the things the APP process is there to do and, and to weigh up and I think we will look at that Welcome back to The Wonky Show your weekly way to this week's higher education news policy and analysis I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief Mark Leach and joining me to untangle the knotted ball of HE policy this week are three brilliant guests as usual in Canterbury we've got Carl Ligo Vice-Chancellor of Arden University Carl your highlight of the week please well, I was watching the Queen's speech on BBC and the studio debate was led by my former law student, who's now a shadow secretary of state, and they were debating constitutional law and the proposed new Bill of Rights. So as a professor of law, that made me feel very proud and very old. And in the heart of Northampton, it's Sean Waring, Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Northampton. Sean, your highlight of the week, please. Morning, Mark. Um, it'll be this evening, I think, the Student uh, Teaching and Representation Award that the Student Union runs, and I'm giving an award for staff innovation in research. And in her last appearance before going off on mat leave, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week. Uh, well, it has to be our Access All Areas event on Tuesday. And I guess a personal highlight for me was just, you know, getting through the day without giving birth. That was an achievement. <laughs> yes, we're all pleased to see. Um now, we start the week with the massive news that the ref results are out. Debbie, um, tell us how we got here. Well, so this is uh, delayed ref 2021 results. Um, came out this morning. Everyone will be, uh, universities, of course, had their, had their results earlier in the week and have had the chance to crunch the numbers, draft their press releases and, uh, and, uh, and spin, spin what's come out. But actually, I think the big, the big news story here is, um, the enormous scale of, of really high quality research that's going on across the UK. So, uh, 84% of assess, of the research that was assessed was rated as either world leading or internationally excellent. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the kind of consequences of some of the changes that we've seen since the last ref, um, is is that excellence is spread even more widely, you know, both both outside the Russell Group and outside of London. Although, as you would expect, you know, the most research-intensive universities continue to perform incredibly well. Um, things that have changed since the last time um, is all research active staff. Uh, we're, we're, we're required to submit, um, and every area in which a university is active, so every subject area or unit of assessment in, in ref language, um, we're, we're, we're obliged to submit something. There's a bit more uh, variability in the number of things that they that people needed to assess, and that sort of helped to take account of things like people who might have had a career break or gone off on, on you know on maternity or or, or, or parental leave, um, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and the the, uh, the impact uh, and environment measures, so that, you know, so. Those unfamiliar with REF will, will may not be aware that the kind of there are basically three things that you're measuring. You're measuring the overall quality of the output in terms of 
um, how it's taking forward the discipline um, and, and its, and it's general you know, contribution to knowledge. But you're also measuring the impact of that research um, outside the university in the what, what we sometimes kind of falsely call the real world um, and the environment for research that the university uh, enables. So by increasing the impact and environment weighting, um, you get a much better sense of the changes, the you know the you know the the. Uh, that the research is making uh, in the world to the economy, to society, um, to you know, the general point of public health and well-being. Um, and the combined impact of this change seems to be, as I said, that we've got we've got this enormous like great great spread of excellence. Um, and you can see, you know, we, we've we've seen in the past little pockets of excellence, you know, in in universities where you might not necessarily, if you you know, if you, if you weren't paying very close attention, expect it. And we're seeing quite a lot more of that. Um, and that's I think is really good news for for you know anyone who's a fan of kind of the place and leveling up agenda. Um, and and um, and you know, and, and keen to kind of continue to advance the idea that research, you know, should 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 where possible be impactful. Um, of course, on the site today, DK has all the data you need, and there'll be more commentary coming out throughout the day um, in the weeks and months ahead. So uh, keep an eye out for that. So it's 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 a bit of a different flavour uh, this year, isn't it? Isn't it, Sean? I mean, there's a, a bit there's a bit less game playing, um, and and possibly a bit less heat on on who's up and who's down because things have changed quite a bit since last time, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. So. Well, first of all, massive congratulations to everybody involved in, in REF 2021. Um, and as Debbie said, it's absolutely fantastic to see right across the sector um, that four-star and three-star research, um, including my colleagues here in Northampton. So congratulations to all of them. Um, it was designed to be less game playing. And I know that's a real challenge on these exercises because, um, you know, give academics uh, something that could be measured and they'll find a way to, to game play it. But I, I do think um, this is this is robust. It is peer evaluated. It's objective. Um, and I think actually we should be really proud as a sector of these um um, the consequences, the outcomes of REF um, and, and really hold our head high about it. And as you said, I think um, not much game playing here. Of course, there's a lot of bunching in the middle. So people will be, you know, rubbing shoulders saying, you know, I'm up two places, down two places. And I think we need to be um, quite careful about um, uh, interpreting the league tables because actually very, very small um, differences in in outcomes produced um, will, will produce league table swings, uh, and I think overall uh, there's a lot of information in there. And of course, we'll be processing it over the the coming year as we get more information about how the decisions were made. But I think it, it's a really good show, um, and of course, it was uh, a year late coming out, and so we're very pleased to see it now. It's also worth I think it's worth it's worth it's worth noting actually. Um, one of the things that I think will come out so there'll be another there'll be another batch of insight in the summer where there'll be a lot more kind of detail behind behind. As Sean says, behind these decisions, um, and one of the kind of um, hints that we've had in some of the briefings is is that um, there's a really interesting story to tell about interdisciplinary research. Um, and I mean, that's always been something that the ref has kind of struggled to deal with because, of course, we've got these kind of well-defined subject areas, units of assessment. Um, and this ref, it seems that you know, they've been making real efforts to think about how do we how do we assess research that crosses disciplines. And I think one of the implications is, of course, is that when you've got really good interdisciplinary research, you can really demonstrate impact because you're bringing together people from different disciplinary areas to solve interesting problems. Um, so I think we'll be really looking forward to finding out what that looks like and and, and how that's panned out. 
Um, the other thing I suppose we should be looking out for in, in the weeks ahead is, is lots of discussion about whether the ref is worth it and um, you know whether, whether this exercise, which you know obviously does kind of create a lot of heat and light at the time that that it, that it happens, um, is kind of overly burdensome. And we had the sort of not unexpected commentary from Joe Grady at UCU saying that it's a, you know that it's a sort of very problematic exercise and, and very expensive and burdensome and and you know not very helpful in terms of kind of academic uh, experience and that and that sort of thing. So I imagine we're going to be seeing quite a lot of debate about the future of the ref. Um, and, uh, you know, whether, you know, whether it's value for money. Um, and there's a rather nice little piece on the site that we published earlier this week from Jonathan Grant, um, Five Myths About the Ref, where he, um, sort of defends, defends it against accusations of kind of burdensome and, and expenditure and, and that there might be more efficient ways to do it, which is very much worth a look. So just back to the, the point about game playing, I think the games are going to start with the, the league tables and, um, everywhere competing to be, um, top in a particular angle of it. So as we see people, um, debating whether, um, four star research should be the measure or grade point average um, or some other way of doing it. We'll probably find that everywhere's got a claim as to be top of the league table in some way. There are, there are some, there are some also interesting trends to consider, aren't there? So, um, performance of universities outside of London, uh, for example, uh, you know, particular strengths in places like Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, and Newcastle, North- Northumbria. So there's a sort of, the government could could possibly claim a bit of a, a levelling up win uh, when it comes to how this ref has played out, couldn't they? Yeah, I think that's right. And that's, I think it's, it's good to keep that story pressing forward. And we're going to come on in a minute and um, talk about widening access. But I do think... Um, showing that students all over the the country from from um any region have access to higher education that's informed by um international quality research um and then th- th- those universities are having conversations with employers industry professions um again the law profession as Carl said earlier um that all universities can engage um from a research position with the outside world i think is a really important story as part of leveling up I, th- I think also there's quite an important thing here about university um, coordination and collaboration at a regional level as well, because, you know, research, we know research is an ecosystem. Um, and, you know, so much of the government's agenda around the research and development roadmap, um, you know, UKRI's recent strategy is about thinking about what is the contribution of different kinds of universities in, you know, in places to, you know, to particular areas of strength and, and innovation and, and kind of potential for, for, you know, for economic transformation and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, where we can kind of mine these findings to say, well, actually, we can we can look at some we can see some patterns of uh, of excellence that are not you know that are less related to kind of individual institutions and are more related to people coming together to do interesting things in in, in places that that can only be really positive for the kind of for the you know for for, for the science you know to become a science superpower. And we totally argue that you know universities are, are key to um, regional regeneration um, and and being a place that attracts industry in that region. Um, so yes, this is a really p- important part of that narrative. I think it's important not to lose sight of the overarching message, which is that 84% of assessed re- research is either world-leading or internationally excellent. So our university sector is doing a tremendous job on a small amount of resource and, and internationally compar- comparable to any other university sector. So congratulations to everyone. Quite right, quite right. I think one of the other interesting things is the, um, I mean, a lot is being made about this in the kind of the, the, the initial hot takes, but the, um, the, the slight breaking of the golden triangle, I mean, it's hardly a, it's, it's hardly been smashed, but there are, um, you know, there, there is, there is definitely a, a, a slightly more spreading out of, um, of excellence in a way that is, um, 
you know, not <laughs> probably the, some, some sections of the Russell Group might be un, unhappy with. But that's that's a really interesting trend, isn't it? I mean, also, I mean, particularly particularly the power of the uh, the, the small and specialists is really really notable, aren't they, Debbie? Yes, I think I think, and, and, and I suppose I suppose the. The things, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's quite easy to be kind of, I guess, uncomplicatedly celebratory at this point in the cycle when the funding starts getting allocated and it's seen what the impact of that is. I think, you know, it is all, it is all, I, th- I think the overall funding envelope is, is slightly larger than, than, than it has been in the past. So that will, I think, help to relieve some of the kind of, um, pressures of, of feeling like the whole thing is a zero sum game. Um, but yes, it, it, it wouldn't be surprising to see, for example, some large research intensive universities sort of saying this is actually going to be quite problematic in terms of the distribution of resource. Um, and I guess, you know, that some, some of that will inf- unfold in the weeks ahead. And it's, and it's just a question of whether, I, <laughs> whether, whether the uh, government and policymakers are kind of uh, sympathetic to, the, to those sorts of arguments. Um, and whether it's perceived to be worth making them in a context when, of course, you know, the agenda is very focused on, on, on yeah, that, placing so, that link up. You know, that's a, that's, that's, that brings me on to another, another thought, which was, you know, what, what the government says about genuine now evidence research excellence in, in areas that they, you know, really don't like very much and don't want to spend a lot of money on. I'm thinking, you know, creative industries, for example, but there's lots, there's lots of other, other examples. We've got evidence here that shows there's absolutely some fantastic stuff that goes on also on often in un- unexpected places as well. So is it, is it, is it, Shana, is it a bit awkward for the government to, to have this? <laughs> Well, one of the things I think is uh, university missions um, e- extend beyond the terms of government. So I think it's really important for us to keep a sight, you know, st- stewardship of these important areas of culture and learning. And of course, industry, I mean, you know, millions of pounds in, in cultural industries across the country. Um, but I, I think it is a good news story because they are under threat. And um, it, it Part of the reason is we've been struggling to attract students into some of these areas. Um, so I think anything that highlights um, value, importance, success, vibrancy of um, culture, arts and humanities um, in, the, in universities and in industry is a good thing. I think as well, it's important to remember, because, um, of course, research sits in bays um, under uh, George Freeman. Um, as minister, and of course, you know, and, and, and the devolved administrations as well. So, um, what, you know, what one minister over at DFE might be saying about, you know, sabre rattling about, you know, low quality courses and all the rest of it and kind of worrying about graduate outcomes, um, in some areas, it probably isn't the same as what the kind of policy thinking is in Bayes. Um, because I think it's quite well understood, um, in that kind of part of government that, you, you know, you really do need a, a good disciplinary spread if you're going to, um, achieve the sort of outcomes that, uh, that, you know, that, that, that they really want to see. Um, and, you know, we used to hear David Bullets, you know, when he was science minister as well as universities minister talk about steam, um, and the important, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, that an overly narrow focus on STEM would actually kind of miss an awful lot of, uh, really high value necessary work that, that you know, that will contribute to solving the world's problems. Um, so I think, I think that's perhaps more, un- more understood. Um, in in that part of government than perhaps in some other parts. Um, so I mean, there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast. Probably they might be in the ref themselves, or they work in universities, and they'll say, "Well, you know, th- we, you know, it's sort of understand why uh, you know research has to be measured um, in some way to justify uh, sp- spending on it." Although some would, some would probably also argue um, that it shouldn't be. Um, I'm I'm sort of interested to get your take, all of you actually, about kind of where we've got to on this on this question. Uh, the ref has always been quite unpopular amongst the rank and file academics. 
Um, and there's but 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 there's a tension between you know obviously those who have to as I say justify the the spending on research and and but the the unintended consequences of what it does in terms of um, you know how universities are managed how resources are planned and, and the rest of it where where have we got to with this well Mark I think we should look at it with an analogy to um, learning and teaching and assessment and think about it as formative and summative assessment so um, a summative approach um, gives you a league table position for example. So, you know, I think there's probably quite a lot to challenge about that. But a formative approach tells you how you're doing against a, you know, set of very robust criteria as your peers have assessed you. um, And it allows you to make plans um, and and build on your strengths and address areas for development for your next cycle. Um, And we would be very remiss if we weren't doing um, some kind of evaluation of this, you know, huge, huge amount of work goes into it, huge amount of funding goes into it. Of course, we should want to know um, where we're doing well, where we could do better. Um, and I think the other thing that REF has done really successfully is drive change around equality and inclusion and other kinds of practices. Um, so um, I, I think if you look at it through a lens of what does the REF drive in terms of change, self-knowledge, um, improvement, collaboration, as Debbie said earlier, I think those are all really good things. Well, the, the issue is taxpayer getting value for money. 84% of research is, is world-leading or internationally excellent. Look what's happened in the pandemic with the rollout of vaccines developed by our universities. I think the British taxpayer can be very proud of its university sector. I think it's I think it's fair to say that so much of the, I think because I think Shan is completely right when you're trying to drive kind of policy and change at a national level. Um, there's always going to be a, you know you're going you're going to see some kind of positive outcomes in terms of in terms of behaviours and you're going to see some more problematic ones. Um, but that doesn't mean that the exercise itself is kind of fundamentally flawed. It means that sometimes people's interpretation or the implementation of the exercise in their institutional context is having um, unforeseen impacts. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think it is probably fair to say, and I, um, I think, you know, our colleague Sunday Blake is gathering some of these stories to share on the site um, a, a bit later today or tomorrow. Um, uh, where, you know, at, at an early career stage, um, researchers can feel under an enormous amount of pressure to kind of produce, um, you know, you know, refable outputs. And that does have consequences. Um, likewise, I think that there's a sort of, um, you know, we know that, you know, we know from kind of work that's been undertaken on research culture that, you know, it, that there can't, the pressure can produce a kind of spirit of like hyper competitiveness, which can lead to, um, you know, sort of bullying and, and some toxic behaviours. Um, I think, you know, the challenge there is to really address those cultures um, and, for, and for institutions to think really carefully about how they approach the REF and whether they approach it, as Sean says, in the spirit of formative assessment, development, um, you know, and, and, and an opportunity to improve, or they approach it as this kind of, you know, horrendous kind of hyper-competitive zero-sum uh, sort, sort of experience and, and with a kind of, with a knock-on impact on, on the academic experience. And I think it's perfectly possible, you know, in, in, it should be perfectly possible to focus on the former and, and try and stamp out the kind of worst aspects of the latter. So as Debbie says, you can find links in the show notes to all our analysis of the ref results um, on wonky.com. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Nick Mount. I'm Academic Director at the University of Nottingham Online. Now, like many universities post-pandemic, my own is beginning to realise some of the new opportunities in digital and online learning. um, And it can see even more opportunities coming down the line in that area with the lifelong loan entitlement, which is going to help us diversify our offer and enhance the flexibility and personalisation of our learning. And I guess micro-credential learning is looking like it's going to be absolutely at the heart of that. And that's going to represent an enormous change that's already proliferating new learning products. It's a change that's going to be backed by significant government funding by 2025. But 
I think that micro-credential learning is challenging fundamental ideas of what university study is, how we should conceive and structure it, how that sort of learning should be designed, produced, and in particular, quality assured. I'm not convinced that the incremental change approach we usually see in institutions um, that govern those areas when faced with significant challenge is going to be able to get us where we need to be quickly enough to respond. So my blog is a call to the sector to be open to rethinking its approaches to learning design and assurance for this new world of micro-credentials. And I'm suggesting we put detailed, robust learning design front and centre in that debate rather than letting it be something that emerges as some sort of afterthought, which I think ultimately will reduce the quality um, that learners experience. So it was the Queen's speech this week, and uh, we got the news that there's going to be a new higher education bill. Carl, walk us through it. So the Queen's speech sets out the agenda for new legislation over the course of this new parliament. It was delivered by Prince Charles in the Queen's absence. It set out that the government aims to pass over four times the amount of legislation it did in the last parliament, a very ambitious agenda. And uh, it includes a new higher education bill to pick up from the consultations that have just closed last week on the lifelong loan entitlement. And of course, we've got the returning higher education freedom of speech bill that I know wonky listeners love to hear about. <laughs> yes, for more more on that, see uh, last, week's, last week's episode. Um, so I, th- I think there's a few things here. I mean, it was it, we knew that the government obviously been consulting on uh, minimum eligibility requirements and num- number controls. But I guess, Debbie, we weren't expecting that to be wrapped up into a big, shiny new uh, bill, were we? No, we were, we were, we were expect, certainly expecting legislation on the lifelong loan entitlement. Um, but what it looks like is going to happen is, is that some of the consequences of the proposals from the HE reform consultation just closed. Um, with the, you know, that included things like the introduction of student number controls and uh, minimum eligibility requirements for student loans. Um, you know, may, may feature in that legislation as well. And it's also, I guess, it is, you know, it is an opportunity, isn't it, for, um, things like, uh, so with the, with the post-16 skills and education bill, we saw, uh, you know, uh, amendments put in around banning essay or restricting, uh, the activities of essay mills. So it isn't, you know, once you've got a bill kind of that, that does a few different things, you've got an opportunity to kind of wedge in any kind of current, current preoccupations and concerns that might, that, that, that might be, might be of issue at the time. So it is, I think the, the, other thing, of course, about a bill on a, on a slightly larger scale, although it's, it's a, it is, of course, concerning because the sector is no friend to either student number controls or minimum eligibility requirements, um, but it does create an opportunity for a you know ex- extended legislative process, lots of opportunity for conversations, for development, for things to be kind of discussed discussed in depth, and I think that is when it comes to those you know those sorts of measures around restricting or, or trying to reshape um, access to different kinds of higher education can only be a good thing because we know that, you know, that there's clearly, you know, there's policymakers are not of one single mind on this uh, as we, you know, on some of these matters, as we saw from the consultation itself, which was extremely open. So uh, it, you know, my only hope really is, is that I get back from my maternity leave in time to get involved in the conversation because I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess we're not expecting the bill to be published imminently, are we? Because that consultation has only just closed. Um, although it does, it does somewhat indicate that they are, you know, they're, they're, they're mind, minding to plough ahead with uh, things like number controls and, and other things that need the um, uh, need primary legislation, um, despite you know virtually everyone in the sector saying saying please don't otherwise they wouldn't have scheduled this this bill would they so um 
I think that's it's kind of that's probably it's probably a bad sign. The other thing that I worry about is when once there's a bill is you know all the other things that might go alongside with it. I mean what what this government doesn't have is a is a big coherent strategy of of higher education reform. What it's doing is um, some you know you know tinkering tinkering around the edges. But once a bill starts its way going through Parliament, who knows what uh, weird amendments and things are gonna are gonna happen. I think that's absolutely right, because I think we've got a lot of contradictions at the heart of this. And, and one is, I think, um, there's three different issues going on around um, entry requirements, standards of qualifications, graduate employment outcomes, and um, kind of consumer demand for higher education. Um, and they all pull in different directions. And I don't think the, the, the government hasn't, it, it veers off in different, you know, follows different um tracks down that but they they don't gel into a coherent strategy so as we were talking earlier about the leveling up agenda which is um, obviously completely at odds with the contraction of higher education based on um, you know perception of costs and arguments about who can benefit um, so I, I think there are risks in this as you've said but I think if we can continue to focus on making sure that um, entry requirements graduate employment opportunities and demand for higher education are seen as three separate things that have to be um, resolved in different ways um, and, and not not just see the government use that as a way to contract higher education um, that that damages the progress towards levelling up. Mm. I guess the flip side of that is that by putting those things on the agenda in, in Parliament, we could have a, an interesting debate about mm. um, the shape and size of, of, of higher education and there's an opportunity for the sector to lobby lo- local MPs and others, um, and particularly in the House of Lords, when it comes to it, to, to actually defend... Uh, what what universities do? Yeah, I think that's totally more of a right. comment, more of a comment yeah, than yeah. a question. But yeah, yeah. Um, I was really interested to see the um, the the areas of um, the measures on renters' reform as well and, and protect duty of public spaces. Um, because uh, through COVID, we're very conscious of the uh, the difference of experience of students in private accommodation compared to university accommodation. Uh, and I think anything that kind of addresses those inequalities is, is to be welcomed. Apprenticeships, I thought the Queen's speech, uh, the notes the government issued, seem to be suggesting that they've got it wrong on the apprenticeship levy, that they're going to oh. have another look at that. Um, and look at ways to get greater private investment into skills training and technical training. So that was under the apprenticeships uh, section. Um, that, that, for me, looked very interesting. There's also a piece around the digital markets competition and consumer bill. Every university advertises on Google, Facebook, etc. And the government recogni- recognizes that there's probably 2.4 billion per year lost to consumers because of the anti-competitive behavior of Google and Facebook. Um, so that would uh, help um, with the unit costs that universities have. I also thought there was some interesting uh, information about part-time students, a recognition that many part-time students are put off coming to university because of the cost of provision. Maybe the lifelong loan entitlement will give us that opportunity. And I'd really encourage universities to engage with the lifelong loan entitlement. It's a shame that government only looks at things in the way of loans instead of looking at the taxation system to enable uh, people who invest in their own career to be able to deduct that as a taxable expense. A self-employed person or a company can do that, but an employee can't. 
Um, so I thought I thought there were some other things as you read through uh, the information on the on the renters reform bill. I didn't think it went far enough, um, creating a new ombudsman for private landlords. Yeah, but but it doesn't really go far enough for me. And on the freedom of speech um, higher education bill, I mean it's really poorly drafted. As a lawyer, I've sort of unpicked it for for a review. Um, and what I think is missing is really an understanding that freedom of speech works best if there is respect for people who express their opinions. And the legislation doesn't seek to give any um, recognition that universities need to respect somebody once they express their opinion. It's all about employment protection rights. So I'm sure that the legislation will be used to harass employers. Um, and it's all about student unions making sure that their facilities are available for people to express their opinion. But what's missing at the heart of our society is a respect for people when they express their opinion. You're either shouted down, you have protesters gluing themselves to something that they disagree with, and and that's really the issue. And it, and it stems from members of parliament who call one another scum, who um, you know are not setting a good example. And I think legislation is great, but it's not going to solve the problem respect is missing yeah i mean that's, that's essentially what we've been arguing is is that you know the, the, pro the problem is cultural not uh you know not not and which is not something you can really fix with legislation and you know this is a bit of a you know treading old ground in some ways but i do think that it's you know it's the, the models of debate that we have um as you say carl are just just not very productive in terms of um educating uh developing understanding building common ground helping people see things from other perspectives it's you know it's, it's not um it, it, you know, it is, it is not a productive conversation. And I know one of the kind of really positive things universities are doing is thinking about how do we foster positive, meaningful conversations and disagree respectfully. Um, and that seems to me to be the space where real, you know, real, real, real change could be happening. Um, and, and actually, and in some ways, this legislation is, is, is making it going to make that even harder. Yeah, it's fascinating to see the evidence base, if you like, the government has for this um, particular piece of legislation, which is the policy exchange survey, showing that academic staff self-censored um, and wouldn't express an opinion because they didn't feel that their opinion would be well received. Um, and, and, and I think that's essentially the issue. And it's not legislative, it's cultural, as you say. Mm. And, it's not, and, 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 and it's not only universities, it's everywhere. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, a version of that we've got going on at the minute is, <clears throat> excuse me, lots of freedom of information requests about um, uh, our, our curriculum, particularly, um, and we're really struggling with those because we, when we answer them, we find we're um, lambasted in the press for what we've said, and we're really trying to navigate, you know, truthfully answering our freedom of information requests, but in a way that doesn't kind of open us up to. Um, negative headlines that are very difficult to respond to. Uh, so, so recent examples were um, we we got a history curriculum which covers a wide range of things, including um, descriptions of torture, um, and we we alert students to that beforehand. Um, but when um, when the freedom of information request comes in, we find ourselves positioned in the press in a very negative way. So I think that absolutely goes to um, what Carl and Debbie were saying about culture of respect um, when something is said. I reviewed an article last week um, 
and the author suggested that students should have a contractual obligation to respect the opinion of others. Um, now, it's a neat concept. However, it's fraught with difficulty. I mean, what do you do if a student's in breach of contract? But yes, is it enforceable? Surely that's yeah, the first, one of the first things you learn in GCSE contracts. <laughs> yeah, but, but the legislation is giving a right to be able to bring a claim before a court for compensation for loss. Well, what loss do you have when you're just expressing an opinion? I mean, it's crazy that it gets to that level on law. And I welcome people thinking wider about how do we get respect into the debate. But it starts with politicians it starts with our our leaders respecting the law. Right. All this season, we're working with the Association of University Administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hardworking HE professionals around the country. And this week, we caught up with Kelly Wolf and Hugh Jones, who told us about mentoring and practice and why others should try it. Hi, I'm Kelly Wolf, Deputy Academic Registrar for Registry Services at the University of Roehampton and the AUA Advocate for Roehampton. Hi, my name is Hugh Jones. I am a freelance higher education consultant and I'm also the programme lead for the AUA Postgrad Certificate. We're working on the area of mentoring and presenting at AUA conference about it because we both think it's a really useful activity for people to engage in. So I've been mentoring Kelly for a couple of years now and it's something which I get a lot out of. I think Kelly does too. And it's a way to help everybody see the world through somebody else's eyes, which is a rare treat, but also to, from the mentor's perspective, help someone grow, help someone achieve their potential, which is great. Well, the best thing for me about being in a mentoring arrangement with Hugh is has, first of all, been approaching him and asking him to be my mentor. I think that's probably the smartest thing I've ever done in my career <laughs> to date. But um, really using him as a sounding board and being able to come to him with daily queries, HE sector queries, and most importantly, I think for me, uh, getting his advice and support along the way as I pursued promotion and landing the promotion in the end. So that certainly has been a very good thing in my career so far. There's also challenges to mentoring. I think the biggest challenge that I've found um, and it comes particularly from the mentor's perspective, is thinking about the kind of tone to set. It can be tempting to directly make suggestions. Do that. Do this. And, of course, people don't learn that way. Um, you need to remember that the often the best way to help someone learn for themselves and find out for themselves is to ask hard questions, be a bit of a critical friend, lead them somewhere but remember it's their journey not your journey and so I think making the tone right and that applies in management just as much as in mentoring is a really important thing to do. I'd say anyone looking at mentoring really I'd have I'd have a few top tips for you so first of all get yourself a mentor if you don't have one already or or somebody to mentor put yourself out there if you don't have access to a formal scheme like the AUA's mentoring scheme, then there are other ways you can approach senior people in your institution, um, ask for introductions. You know, if you want to mentor other people, uh, you can also make it known that you are, are happy to coach people and, and you'd be surprised that, you know, there may be just the right person 
you know, waiting for that opportunity. Secondly, make sure you use that time wisely. Everyone is busy and respecting your mentor's time um, by being prepared to, to talk about something or, you know, using the time in the way it's meant uh, instead of frittering it away. Absolutely essential. And finally, being yourself, being completely honest in that relationship and, you know, not wanting to worry about impressing them with your prowess and your knowledge, but being clear and honest about where you're at and what you need and where you have made mistakes and how you can learn from them and how you can learn together along the way is, again, absolutely essential to getting the most out of a mentoring relationship. Kellyn, who will be speaking at the AUA annual conference at the University of Manchester on 7th and 8th of July. You can find a link in the show notes or find out more at aua.ac.uk. Now, earlier in the week, I caught up with John Blake, the new Director for Fair Access and Participation at the Office of Students at our Access All Areas event in London. And he had a lot to say. Here's a clip. Clearly, their financial support is part of the APP process and one of the things to consider, and it will be part of the new cycle. I know, so I don't know if Jim Dickinson is now here, but I did read with interest his article about the APP variations and what we asked for and what we didn't ask for. And it did make me reflect that, I, I mean, I genuinely read Ronke every day. I love it. Um, but I do feel that I could, I could announce that every HE provider should give every student a bag of gold and there would half an hour be later a, a Jim Dickinson article that sort of said, <laughs> has John Blake considered the terrible impact this will have on inflation? Um, so I think there's not an infinite array of things we could have considered in the variations, but clearly um, cost of living and uh, an appropriate financial support is one of the things the APP process is there to do and, and to weigh up. And I think we will look at that. Um, I think the evidence on bursaries is sketchy, though, the amount of difference they make and, and, and how they endure. And I think we need to, to think very carefully about um, what the shape and form of that, that support package can look like, should look like, and, and, and where that is most effective. And I think we also have to acknowledge that, yes, there are risks to equality of opportunity in provider. So, you know, it, it is acute and obvious when students are struggling in that way. But we all have a responsibility to think about risk to quality of opportunity also much earlier. So there is, you, you can't just pick one phase and be like, well, I'm going to pour everything into that. Otherwise, you know, the, the whole piece doesn't, doesn't hang together. But what, what would you say to government, particularly on the financial support side of things? Um, I mean, there needs to be some tools, right, to, to support students. And this is, a big, this is a missing piece of the puzzle right now. Um, I think, I mean, we'll see what comes out of the, the, the consultation responses to the auger review. I think the APP process is, is, a, is a key part of thinking about what that support process looks like and what work the universities are doing in that. Um, and we will, we will regulate as we go forward in that. I think it's perfectly legitimate for the HE sector um, to go back to government and seek a conversation about that as it goes forward. Um, but again, I don't want to prejudge any of that. Um, and it isn't, you know, we are not here as the OFS, as the the spokespeople of the sector. The sector has quite enough spokespeople who can get quite enough ear, you know, ear of the minister if they need it. Um, what we are interested in is what is most effective um, across the whole life cycle of students. Oh. Sean, there's um, a, lo- a lot in this. What, what jumped out at you? Well, one of the things I thought was really refreshing was um, the way John Blake was looking at what universities can learn from schools and colleges. Um, and I know we've, we've you know, been in a discussion about um, potentially universities um, supporting or helping schools and colleges from a widening access um, 
uh, angle, which I, I think we, we were struggling with, first of all, to see um, how that was resourced, but also where the expertise was, particularly to help schools and colleges do what they needed to do. Um, but John Blake looked at it from the other angle and suggested that schools and colleges were doing um, interesting and useful things with data and evidence that universities could learn from. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely true. I think uh, a more a more um, metrics-based approach to understanding um, student achievement and, and which students are um, progressing and succeeding uh, is, is something that we we have we've moved forward on, but we could continue to do more with. So I thought that was absolutely true, and I was I was really fascinated as well by. Um, the suggestion that we needed more routes in and out of higher education. Again, I thought that was actually framed very productively um, following student demand. Um, and as, as we move into legislation around the lifelong learning entitlement, um, I think John Blake's angle on how we work with third sector and with employers and industry to understand um, pathways through higher education um, and to careers for students um, will continue to evolve. So I, I thought there were definitely areas there um, that we should look forward to exploring further. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was pretty frank, actually, most of the time. And obviously, he, you know, he's not going to be able to disagree with the government or, or his employers at RFS. But he did admit that uh, the, the DFE lacks lacks tools to deal with um, uh, the cost cost of living crisis for for students. Um, I think his, his words were they're, they're they're currently missing, which I mean that's a, that's about as far as anyone we've uh, we, we we've heard go when it comes to um, this issue at uh, at this sort of level, isn't it, Debbie? Yeah, and I think the kind of the elephant in the room at the minute when, when it comes to access really is that you know, is, is, is about affordability and, and, you know, and that's really not a question of about, you know, the fee levels and, and, you know, and it's really not about kind of university bursaries and either because we're not talking kind of sufficient money there to, to really kind of, you know, change behaviours. It's about the fact that, you know, energy costs are rising, um, you know, students' families will be, will be struggling, um, you know, more people will be in poverty um, over the next, you know, couple of years if the cost of living crisis continues in its current trajectory. Um, I was talking, you know, there's a great thing about going to in-person events, you know, you can hear the bad news in person. I was talking to a colleague who's, uh, who grew up on a farm and uh, she said that her, her dad's been kind of getting in touch and saying, you know, we haven't even seen the beginning of uh, of the impact on, on things like the price of grain. You know, it's sort of set to quintuple in the months ahead. And of course, you know that that makes a difference in terms of people's level of confidence, um, in in terms of their 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 sort of sense of their freedom to, to make choices. Um, and of course, universities work incredibly hard to try and make things accessible. But if students can't draw down on on kind of sufficient maintenance support, um. As you know, as the OGA report recommended, you know, really, really, that this should, should really be looked at, and that maintenance support should be tied tied to the national living wage. Um, if students can't access that, then you know that that there's a real question of how are they going to live? And if they do manage to enrol in a university course, you know, they're making choices between heating and eating, as as, uh, as, as someone at the event. Um, very, very wisely pointed out. And of course, the consequences in terms of their ability to engage and be successful is enormous. And, it, you know, and, and of course, John is completely right to point out that, you know, there's only, the OFS can't really do much with that. And, 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 and DFE has kind of limited, uh, limited influence as well, because it's, it's, it's a question for Treasury. Um, but there is, uh, you know, so that, that is going to be a real challenge um, and something that the universities will certainly kind of start to, you know, start to see pressure on on uh, hardship bursaries and loans mm. and, and, and all that sort of thing 
Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not entirely clear what the solution is. Um, Carl, I'm fascinated to know how you're grappling with the, the kind of access and participation regime at Arden. Yeah, I mean, look, just for me to comment on the uh, maintenance loans, um, I think the, the issue that nobody seems to grapple is that two-thirds of a maintenance loan, at least, is going to go on student accommodation. And if you look at the student accommodation costs, they've, they've risen way above the rate of inflation over the last two decades. As the sector has become professionalized and offers more, you know, some of the large accommodation providers have a margin of 71% profit, and even in COVID, um, 61%. So some of that needs to be looked at. Government could legislate that universities have to provide lower cost accommodation on, on campus for students rather than uh, requiring them to, uh, or giving them the ability to go out to the, uh, the large commercial providers. Now, a university like Arden tries to limit the amount of days in which a student has to come into university. Um, we um, deal with students who are average age in their 30s and they usually have caring responsibilities or work commitments. So we're a different kind of university. As I look at the speech that um, and the interview that you, you did, Mark, with, with uh, um, the Director for Fair Access, what I found a little bit disappointing was that it was a focus on 18-year-olds um, and it's very much looking at schools. I set up a multi-academy trust with the now chief executive of Ofqual. It was the most bureaucratic experience I've ever had. It was really difficult to do and to get involved in. Um, and, um, you know, that is something that I I'm not sure universities will necessarily want to get involved with. But I take the point that metrics there will help to improve things. We should also recognize that we've done a tremendous job in improving access and participation, and rightly so, the concentration should be now on getting people through the degrees and into great jobs. I mean, I myself am a vice chancellor. I was brought up by a single parent. I received free school meals. I went to a comprehensive. I was the first in my family ever to go to university. There are lots of people like me in the university sector. We give so much back and we try to offer these opportunities to other people. So, I, I, you know, I welcome the focus of the new director. Um, I thought there was too much focus on 18-year-olds. I understand why, because that's the large chunk of people going to university. But don't give up on the older people. Don't give up on those who are studying part-time and looking for different routes. Well, I mean, if I think about it, one of the things that might be worth universities considering, because of course the the labour market is reasonably buoyant at the minute for a host of, for a host of complicated reasons. I mean, so, you know, the service industry is, 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 uh, you know, struggling to get staff. And, and so, so I think one of the kind of consequences inevitably of the cost of living crisis is, is going to be that more students are doing part-time work and alongside, or possibly even full-time work alongside their studies. Um, and that may be something that, you know, that, that is something that, well, lot, you know, lots of universities are, are kind of experienced at handling, but that is something that universities can actively respond to um, and be aware of. Um, and, and, and I think particularly in the context of thinking about, uh, you know, the interrelationship of work and study, which I think applies in different ways at different points, you know, at, you know for, 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 for different age groups. Um, I w it, it struck me that, um, 
that, that John was suggesting that the higher education, one of the things the higher education sector could usefully do is, 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 is sort of think about um, the enormous amount of, of expertise that we, we have in, on careers, information, advice and guidance, and perhaps think about extending that into schools and colleges. But I can, you know, I can absolutely imagine um, you know, into you know, into workplaces through employer engagement as well, and kind of, and really kind of disseminating that kind of sense of um, where does education sit on your overall career journey? But um, and, and, and Debbie, these two things relate to each other. Sorry, at the same time as you're saying that people are studying and working, the flexibility that, for example, online learning provides a student is not something that government wants to recognise. In fact, they're going to fine universities if they carry on with their online lectures. It, it's a very contradictory approach. Right, so that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Debbie, Sean, Carl, and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.